Today's scripture reading comes from 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. This is a subject that is near and dear to my heart. It is uh, the subject of um, the importance of reading the Bible. In fact, I will tell you that I have an agenda, and my agenda is very simple. It is this. My agenda is that the Lord would use this time together in his word, this sermon that I've worked on, to stir in us a hunger to read the Bible more. That's it. That this time would be something that would stir in us a desire to read the Bible more. Uh, It's a complicated thing to want because as I'm going to talk about in a little bit, um, I just don't think we do read the Bible. Um, Or at least many of us don't. and so I want to talk about that. Now, that's, that's my hope. That's my prayer. Uh, God is a God who says the God in the Bible says he is one who promises to do immeasurably more than we ask or think. And so he may have other things in mind for us, but that has been my prayer as I've been preparing to come here today. <clears throat> I just got back from uh, a 10-day trip to Israel, uh, which was amazing. Ha- have any of you ever been to Israel before? Show of hands, little, okay. Couple of you. Um, if you ever get a chance to go, I highly recommend that you do it. Um, not for the purpose of having some kind of ultra spiritual experience of getting chills because you're standing where Jesus might have stood, but because you'll read the Bible differently. Um, you don't have to go across the world to, to draw near to God. God is, uh, he, he lives in, in the hearts of his people. But to be able to see the land, firsthand, to be able to see that Bethlehem is kind of a suburb of Jerusalem. It is to Jerusalem what Brentwood is to Nashville, really kind of helps you see uh, that everything is so compact and everything was so... Anyway, it was a beautiful thing, but for me, it wasn't just being able to go to Israel. Uh, it, was that, it was that 21 years ago, I lived in Israel. So I, was, I, I did a study abroad, a semester abroad when I was in college. And so the fall semester of my senior year, I went over and I lived in Jerusalem. I lived right outside the old city walls. And so it was kind of a homecoming for me. And it was very moving for me to be able to go and just see this place where I had been. When I was there as a student, we, if I get close, am I going to feed back if I venture too far? Okay. When I was a student there, the way it worked is our school was pretty much all exchange or all uh, study abroad students. And uh, one of the classes that we all had to take was this physical settings of the Bible class, which meant that, that we would have every other weekend, Friday through Sunday, would be field trips where we would go to Galilee or to the Negev or uh, to, you know, um, Tel Aviv or where David fought Goliath. And we would spend a few days in these places, which meant that classes didn't meet on Friday, which also meant that every other weekend was a free three-day weekend. And so get the picture, we're all kind of 21 to 22-year-olds, 
away from home in a country on the other side of the world. It's about as romantic as you can imagine, right? I mean, we're just, we have the world at our fingertips. We're not, we don't know what to be afraid of. Uh, and so we're just there and we're living and we're taking field trips every opportunity that we get. Um, and then we're also just taking trips to go hike and camp and explore on our own. And there was a group of about six of us that decided one day that we would go spend, spend the night on the Mediterranean coast. We would just go to the beach, the Mediterranean Sea. We'd pick a place on the map and just bring sleeping bags and food and water for overnight. We would just sleep out under the stars on the Mediterranean Sea. It was as awesome as you think it was. And so we picked a place on the map, not knowing what it was, a, a city called Dor. When we got there, we realized it wasn't a city, it was a ruin, meaning there was nothing around. So the taxi drove us to this just kind of out in the middle of nowhere place. We piled out, and it was just us. Six of us sleeping on the beach, eating sandwiches that we had made from the kitchen at the school and drinking water, maybe wine. And we're there and we just, you know, just the sky is clear, the moon is out, the stars are shining, little crabs are crawling all over us and it's wonderful. And the, and the sound of the sea is just rocking us to sleep. And we get up in the morning and a few of us decide we're going to go for a run. And so we're running down the beach and I get about a half mile down and something, you know, like barefoot in the water run. And something is shining on the beach in front of me. I see it. It kind of glints in the sun. And I stop and investigate this thing that is lying on the beach. And I could not believe what it was that I had found. And I brought it with me to show you. I found on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea in the middle of nowhere, this. <laughs> this is an actual message in a bottle. In the middle of nowhere. Mediterranean Sea. This is made up of three simple parts. It's a glass bottle, it's a piece of paper, and it's a cork. What an amazing thing to find, right? I, I found it, and, and because when you find something like this, it's such a simple object, but it is just filled with potentially unimaginable significance for the one who sends it out and for the person who finds it, right? It's almost like a cosmic, sacred exchange between two parties. And it could say anything. We figured, based on where we were and because there was nothing really around us, that this had to have come from somebody out in the Mediterranean Sea. So this had to have been thrown overboard from some kind of a vessel, maybe it was a cruise ship, maybe it was a fishing boat, perhaps whatever vessel it was was then now laying on the bottom of the ocean floor. Perhaps the person who wrote the note in the bottle is with it. Or maybe they're curled up on a deserted island alone and thirsty and wondering if anybody is gonna get this last ditch plea for help. Or maybe it's a declaration of devotion between lovers. Maybe it's part of an epic adventure that was imagined in the minds of children who were bored at the dinner table of their parents' anniversary cruise. Or maybe it's something you and I could not even imagine until we pop the cork and read the message. The possibilities are limitless. And so we passed the bottle around at our camp, but we didn't open it. And the reason we didn't open it then is because nobody had a bottle opener with them. 
And somebody said, well, we could shove the cork into the bottle. And I was like, no, we can't. That'll ruin my souvenir, right? How am I going to fix that? So we decided not to do that. We decided instead that we would wait until we got back to the school after a couple of days and that I would find a bottle opener in the kitchen. I would open it then and then we would read the message. Well, I got back there and I just couldn't find the bottle opener. I didn't look super hard, but I couldn't find it. And so I just stalled out. Somebody said, hey, you could use this wood screw and then try to, and I tried that and you can, you can see uh, that there's a dimple in there where I tried to use a wood screw to pull it out and it started to destroy the cork. And I'm like, I'm not doing that. So... The truth is, for want of a corkscrew and a sense of urgency, I just didn't open it until I got back to the States three months later. How do you like me now? (laughs) Yeah, I just figured whatever the note said could wait. And I believe that, I mean, Classic sermon illustration, right? I believe this describes a lot of people's, a lot of Christian people's relationship with Scripture. We have Bibles. We often have multiple copies. But we don't open them and read what's written on the pages. We have our reasons for this. You have your reasons for this. I have my reasons for this. And those reasons are our own. But we are not Generally speaking, I know some of you this isn't the case, but for a lot of us, we are not, as Paul wrote to Timothy in verse 15, people who are acquainted with the sacred writings. I've been a pastor for close to 15 years, and I see that we are a biblically illiterate generation. I can't assume any level of biblical literacy when I preach, and I can't. I don't mean that as an insult. I just mean it simply at face value to say that a great many people who claim to embrace Christianity have just not read the book upon which their faith is based. We own this book that Paul told Timothy is breathed out by God and is profitable, useful, helpful for training, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, for teaching. We even have opinions about the Bible. But we don't know what it says. And the simple question is, does that make any sense at all? I just, I wanna make a case today for why we should open the bottle and read the message and not just leave it on a shelf. So the way we're going to do this is I just have a couple of kind of thought pegs, if you want to organize it that way, where we're going to talk about um, authoritative voices and and yielding to authoritative voices. Everybody yields to an authoritative voice, something they say, this is the voice that breaks the tie. Why should scripture alone be that voice? We're going to go there, and then we're going to talk about, okay, what does it mean to even talk about this subject in a way that's not flippant but humble? because we live in a cynical time. And then we're gonna land with Jesus and then I'm gonna say a couple of important words about this this bottle I've showed you. So, everybody yields to an authoritative voice. I'm making a sweeping statement and I'll stand by it. I don't think anybody can knock that down. Everybody yields to an authoritative voice. This idea of embracing scripture 
as Paul describes it in our text, has an old theological name. The name would be Sola Scriptura. Have you ever heard of that? The five solas of the Reformation. Sola Scriptura, which means by Scripture alone. It means that Christians are people that are called to live by Scripture alone. What does that mean? Well, it means that we view Scripture and by scripture, what I mean is the Old Testament, which Jesus said he did not come to abolish, but to fulfill, and the story of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus as preserved and taught by his apostles through the New Testament, that this is the believer's authoritative rule for life and faith. In other words, we embrace and yield to the authority of scripture above all other authoritative voices. By saying that, I lose some of you. And I lose some of you because your response to that, if I say we live under the authority of Scripture, you might say, nobody tells me what to do. To which I would say to that, by saying nobody tells me what to do, you are actually revealing that you do, in fact, live according to an authoritative voice. It's just that that voice is your own. That's problematic if your voice is the authoritative voice that you yield to. Why is that problematic? Well, we'll get to that in a second. But the question is not whether or not you or I obey an authoritative voice. We all already do this. We all follow authoritative voices that determine the code we're going to live by, what we're going to value, our moral compass, things we will value, people we will value, the way that we will engage with the world. Each of us does this, even if it's our own. So the question is not if we will yield to an authoritative voice. The question is, which authoritative voice do you yield to? And have you ever considered what that voice is? And then on top of that, have you ever evaluated what qualifies that voice to hold such an important role in this one life you have been given? Because if the main authority we yield to is our own, here's what's problematic about that. We are following a voice whose wisdom and insight into this life is no greater than what we already know. And if you're anything like me, that's just not going to end well. Right? If I'm thinking, I see the field clearly, I know all that there is to know, and I can trust, you know, follow your heart. It won't fail you. Well, yes, it will. It'll make dumb decisions. Why should Scripture alone be the voice that we yield to above all others? Well, historically, Christians have been people of the book. It's not a new concept to say Christians are people who live according to Scripture. That's not a new thing at all. There, of course, have been seasons in history where scriptures played second fiddle to the voices of the age. We are most certainly in one of those seasons right now. It costs you a little something to say, I trust the Bible above the voices of our age. As a pastor, I just, I don't see a lot of evidence to suggest that we are in some golden age of love and reverence for the Bible. I just, I just don't see that. And one of the contributing factors, one of the main contributing factors, I would suggest, is that the reason we're not living in a golden age of affection and reverence for Scripture is because people aren't reading it. Why would we revere something we've not read? It's like talking authoritatively about a movie you've not seen. 
in, in scripture, we have this collection of writings that's been preserved down through the ages, living words, which have indisputably transformed the lives of countless people, people smarter than you and me, spurring them on to love and good deeds. This message in a bottle that's washed up on our shores and many of us just kind of yawn with indifference and leave it closed. So why should we read it? Why should we yield to it as our authoritative voice? Why make such a big deal about this? Why talk about this? Because the way scripture talks about itself, which we see in the text today, is, is compelling. Because here's how scripture presents itself. When you read scripture and, and you read what it says about itself, here's what it says. This book is God's complete, sufficient, inspired, reliable, authoritative, normative revelation of himself to we who are made in his image. I'll say that again. Scripture is God's complete, sufficient, inspired, reliable, authoritative, normative revelation of himself to we who are made in his image. I'm gonna break these down quickly. It is perfectly complete, Scripture is. And when we're talking about Scripture being complete, we mean complete in what it's intended to do. So this book is not complete in the sense that it doesn't tell us how to set the footings for a skyscraper in New York City. It's just not intended to do that. What it is, is it's God's revelation of himself to us and how we live in relationship with him. And so it is perfectly complete for salvation. You get that? It's perfectly complete for salvation. As a whole, as the revelation by which we find our identity and understanding and understand redemption, Scripture has no missing pieces. What we need to know is there. It is, as Paul wrote in verse 15, able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Wayne Grudem, a Bible scholar, said that scripture contained all the words God intended his people to have at each stage of his redemptive history. Now it contains everything we need God to tell us for salvation, for trusting him perfectly, for obeying him perfectly. It's also sufficient. What is it sufficient for? It's sufficient to interpret itself. Meaning scripture interprets scripture. If I want to understand something in the Bible... The rest of the whole of scripture helps me see it in the way that it's intended. It's sufficient for clear interpretation. To be useful for training, teaching, and reproof, scripture has to be what? It has to be comprehensible. It has to be something we can read and say, I understand what this is saying. It's not like the Bible is some... Uh, book that fell from an alien culture in outer space and we're trying to just decipher the runes of this strange time and place and being, it's God giving us a revelation of himself that we might know him. And so it's not given to confuse us. It's God's revelation of himself to us, but it calls for us to interact with it, to study, to read, and it contains what we need to rightly understand and interpret the essentials of the faith in their context, but we have to read it to know that. Third, it's inspired by God. 
Scripture is God-breathed, Paul says. Charles Hodge said this about uh, the, the, the inspired nature of Scripture. He said, it's an influence of the Holy Spirit on the minds of select men, which rendered them organs of God for the infallible communication of his mind and will. They were, in such sense, the organs of God that they said what God said. In other words, ultimately, God is the author and the one who preserves the content of what's in this book. Now, I hope when I say that, in a skeptical age, some of us would say, you know that's a tall order to believe that, right? You're telling me God is the author of this book? I'm not telling you God is the author of book, this book. Scripture is telling us that God is the author of this book. And not only that, but this has been the belief of Christianity since the beginning. It's inspired by God. Because it's inspired by God, it's reliable. That just kind of follows, right? If God is the author of the content of this book, then we can trust it. It's inspired by God. We can trust it. It's given so that, Paul writes, the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Scripture is useful for training in righteousness. We can trust that because Scripture is God's complete, sufficient, spirit-inspired revelation of himself that we can trust that it is without error. Yeah, the people who wrote it down were flawed people. But the one who has preserved it down through time is not. And so the doctrine of sola scriptura says this, this book is unable to err. So I know that's a strong thing to say. It's also authoritative and normative. If scripture is complete, sufficient revelation for how a person is to live in this world in relationship with their creator, and it's inspired by God himself and preserved for us by the Holy Spirit without error, what that means is there is no other book or moral code that can equal its authority. There's nothing else on the same plane as this. And down through time around the world, Christians have said, okay, that's how I'm going to then live. This is the believer's moral, ethical, theological standard to live by. So that's what it means to live by Scripture alone. It means that we say Scripture is God's complete, sufficient, inspired, reliable, authoritative, normative revelation of himself to we who are made in his image. I live by this book. It's the authoritative voice. It breaks the tie. So how should we respond to claims like this? Because I know that we live in a skeptical age. You may be thinking right now, people are naive to hold that kind of a view of the Bible. It's just silly. And so before wrapping up the discussion about why we should open the Bible to read the message, I want to acknowledge that I just said a lot of things about Scripture that will or should raise a lot of big, complex questions. Questions that you can't answer yet in the moment that you ask them. And to that I would say, ask your questions. For the love of God, ask your questions. A religion that says don't ask questions is a cult. Ask your questions. But also as you're asking your questions, ask yourself in the mirror, is this a real question? Like do I genuinely want to have understanding here? Or is this just a way to kind of block 
having to engage this anymore. Because it's a sign that we're growing in any field of study, including Christianity, that the more we learn, the more questions we have, right? When I learn something, it's kind of like a door gets opened and I see what's behind the door. And once I see what's behind the door, I say, oh, now I have like eight more questions because I thought it was this, but now I see all this and I didn't even anticipate what I was going to see back there. And so we have all these questions that come. Today's topic is a great example of this. When I say Christians embrace scripture as given in the Old and New Testament as the authoritative rule of our lives. We should say, okay, but who decided that? Who decided that what was in the Bible anyway? How did this thing come together? How did people decide which books would be included and which ones wouldn't? Why would anyone today give authority to words written thousands of years ago? Those are good questions, right? Let me tell you something about every question I just raised. There are Dozens, if not hundreds of books written about those particular questions by people who have devoted their academic, theological, vocational lives to wrestle with the very question that you're asking. In other words, nobody asks an original question anymore. It's not that all the research has been done that needs to be done. I'm just saying nobody asks an original question anymore. People typically ask these questions one of two ways, flippantly or humbly. Which one are you? Which one am I? Man, I got to tell you, I'm both. I can be as flippant as anybody when it comes to things I just don't want to deal with. I can be like Pontius Pilate saying, what is truth? And then turning around and walking away. Flippancy and humility. The flippant person throws the question out as a reason to excuse themselves from having to give it any more thought. It is ridiculous, the flippant person says, to think that a religious book written so long ago could have any relevance for anybody today. I mean, on its surface, you can see the fatal flaw, right? There are a lot of ways that we could respond to that, to the flippant person who says this. But for the sake of time, let me just offer one. I ask you, is it a sign of wisdom or is it a sign of foolishness to say that if something doesn't make sense to me, it must not make sense at all? Is that wisdom or is that foolishness? If something doesn't make sense to me, then it must not make sense at all. I ask that because really, if you just dismiss everything that we've said about scripture, which has been embraced and followed and people have been martyred for uh, down through time, if you just dismiss that as being ridiculous and silly, are you prepared to say that because you have raised a question that you can't answer, the weakness lies with the thing in the question? Are you really prepared to do that? Are you prepared to say that the millions of people who have embraced this book as their rule for life and faith have died for it from every continent for centuries, have just failed to see what is so plain to you? See, the humble person is willing to consider a few things. First, they're willing to own that their questions come from a lack of knowledge and understanding, not an abundance of it. They're willing to admit, I don't see everything that there is to see. I don't understand everything that there is, to, uh, there, there is to understand. That's why the question is there. 
Second, they accept the knowledge that the knowledge they seek might actually require some work on their part to get to understanding. I'll have people ask me questions, um, the basic theological questions that people have been asking down through time and people have been writing about down through time. Um, if God is so good, how come evil things happen in the world? And I'll say, can I put a book in your hand to read about that? It's the exception when somebody says, yes, please. Most of the time, it's, oh, I didn't mean it like that. <laughs> I don't actually want to engage with the question. I just thought it was a stopper. But it's not. It's not a stopper. Third, the humble person. This one's really important. A humble person recognizes that they're probably not the first person to ask their question. A proud person thinks, I came up with this. A humble person says, I wonder if I can stand on the shoulders of others who have wrestled with the same question and devoted part of their life to trying to understand and study this and research it and write about it because there are people who have done this. Humility wants to learn from other people. Flippancy doesn't. Why? Because flippancy is a characteristic of a cult that doesn't ask questions. Flippancy is the characteristic of the cult of cynicism. The odds against any of us asking an original question, one that has never been asked before, those odds are greater than winning the lottery or finding a message in a bottle on a deserted beach. So if you come up with a thought that seems to topple Christianity with ease, and it leaves you in your mind, and it leaves Christianity in your mind shot full of obvious contradictions and flaws, I would suggest take a deeper look. Why? Because if that question, or others like it, that seem to you to so plainly undermine the Christian faith, could have exposed Christianity as a flawed, fraudulent, empty religion, and people of the book as fools, don't you think that would have happened? By now? The flippant person, of course, isn't bothered by this. They can't be bothered by this. But the humble person is willing to look at Christianity and say, if this faith is still standing, this faith that has cost so many so much, then my questions maybe have reasonable answers. And not just a whole bunch of people colluding to put their heads in the sand. G.K. Chesterton said it this way, Christianity has not been tried and found wanting. It's been found difficult and left untried. What is the Bible? It's the story of God's love for you. It's the story of God's love for me. In these pages we read about how people have tried and failed to live up to impossible standards. Is that you? It's me. It's the story of strivers, manipulators, controllers, shortcutters, people just like us who are encountering a God who is like no other. These pages tell of people who made destructive choices that burn their worlds to the ground and how Jesus dignified them by touching them 
and letting them touch him. In these pages, life rises from the ruins. Prodigals come home and are met with a loving father's embrace. Sinners are protected from the condemning insults of the self-righteous. The poor are fed and they are clothed. Downcast chins are lifted to see the kindness in the eyes of their savior. That's what this book is. Listen, the people of God are a beautiful mess. We always have been. But because of the embrace of the Father, we are nonetheless beautiful. We fail each other, but we also serve each other. We weep together, we celebrate. When one suffers, others come around. When one rejoices, others raise a glass and say, Lachaim to life. The Bible is not a magic book. It's better than that. It's a living book. And if we are to understand it as it presents itself, we see it's not simply the story of characters contained within its covers. It's our story. We are characters in this story. This book, this message in a bottle is a grand adventure greater than a child's imagination and we are in the fellowship. It is a love story about a lover who has pursued and will pursue his beloved across the cosmos and down through time and you are the beloved, the sought one, the object of the lover's affection. This book is a desperate plea for rescue from a great catastrophe, a world on fire. And you are the one being saved. This message in a bottle is written to you. And so I ask you what I said at the beginning. Will you read it? Will you read it? There's an old writing trope that novelists know called Chekhov's gun. Chekhov's gun is a rule that says if the author tells the reader there's a gun lying on the table in the first chapter, it has to be fired by the third chapter. Otherwise, well, why is it there? You know, you just don't put something unuseful in the scene. If it's there, it's got to have some sort of purpose. If no one is going to shoot the gun, it doesn't belong. Why? Because the writer and the reader enter into a social contract that stipulates the gun's very presence promises that it's going to be used for something. Right? So when Paul says about Scripture that this can make you wise concerning salvation, you, it can make you wise concerning salvation through Jesus Christ, that this is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching and reproof and correction and training in righteousness, that believers... You and I might be completely equipped for every good work. He is laying something supremely useful on the table. And he is telling us, your characters in this story, this book is a reliable guide for life and for faith. It's an infallible map. It's a strong statement that Paul is making, and it has to be put to use. It has to be put to work. It can't just lie on the table. What sense would that make? It's like the unspoken agreement that you and I entered into the moment that I showed you this bottle. And that agreement is this. You've been wondering the whole time what the message in this bottle says, haven't you? Why? Why have you been wondering what it says? You've been waiting for me to open and read it or at least tell you what it says. Why? Because these words 
in this bottle are of interest to you because you right now are saying, I am somehow connected to the message that is written in this bottle. It matters to me. Right? I can not only read the message in this bottle, I can recite it from memory. I know what it says. I've read it many times. I know the words by heart. And so there is absolutely nothing, nothing stopping me from telling you what this message says. And so I ask you, what possible sense would it make if after all this, I just didn't? Pray with me.